Hey, Sandy and Nora fans, Nora here. Look, this week we tried, 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 tried to get a new episode for you, and it just wasn't possible, especially with my travel schedule. So you are not going to get an analysis on the news this week, but what you will get is a really wonderful question and answer period from the Winnipeg show. We cover everything from rural organizing to how do you stay sane in the mix of all of the news. I hope you enjoy it, and we will be back next week. So, um, we have a microphone set up. Get the microphone for the question and answer period. Don't be shy. Don't be shy. Be the first. Or you'll make us sing like the Toronto show did. They did make us sing, it's true. That was one of the questions. Don't ask that question. (laughs) All right. Hello. Hi. Hey. Uh, first, just a big thank you to everyone who came. Uh, Sandy, Nora, John, Farrar. I'm Scott Price. I'm the program director at CKW. We're one of the sponsors of this event. Very happy to put it on. Happy that you're all here. Uh, this is amazing. Um, so I want to talk a bit about, like, the we talk about the situation we're in in terms of the politics right now and what... What I want to kind of have you, uh, Sandy and Nora, what I want you to kind of talk about is what we were sort of talking about at Baraka over uh, lunch was like, for organizing, it's like back to basics. It's mm. like log off and like, like it's it, like, I think Nora, you said like organizing really doesn't, isn't going to happen on the internet. And especially now we see social media is basically a mass snitch line. Like, it's not a good thing in a lot of ways. Uh, so could you talk a bit about that, about, like, those basic things that we need to start to get back into doing for organizing, rather than, you know, like, th- you know, like a decade ago, d- Twitter is going to give democracy to everybody. Like, that's not going to, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so could you talk a bit about that? Yeah, okay, so get offline. I mean, honestly... Um, you know, it, it depends on what kind of organizing you're doing. The internet's really useful for different kinds of organizing. But if you're going to do radical organizing that challenges the power of the state, you have to do that in person in some way. I mean, the internet allows for interesting national or larger regional kinds of ways of getting in touch with people, allows us to diffuse information. You probably know about Sandy Nora, like, thanks a little bit to the, the internet in some way, so I can't get totally down on the internet. Um, but it's fucking us, right? It's destroying our brains. It's um, surveying us. It's surveying every, every inch of our lives. It's showing us what we think we want to see. It's not showing us things that perhaps we should see. And, uh, and we're being surveyed from, from A to Z. And so, you know, when it, in my second book, uh, writing about the, the, the women's movement... It was so amazing to me to imagine that feminists in, like, 1880 got together in national conferences, right? And it's like, we're like, how the fuck am I supposed to get to Halifax? It's so hard, right? And it's like, these they fucking sat on a train for four weeks is how they did it, right? Actually, probably train service was better back then, so fair (laughs) enough. But, like, that was really important because Canada is a physically large country and the regional differences in this country are really important. Uh, We have the pleasure of traveling all over Canada a lot and getting to talk to people. And I I could talk for days about the similarities of Canadians in every part of this country, but so much more interesting is the difference. The difference, like, the the accent that you people have... (laughs) It's so cute. <laughs> it's really Winnipeg. And, um, and that's something that you don't realize unless you have the opportunity to hear someone from Sudbury or St. John or fucking, you know, God forbid, Kelowna, right? 
<laughs> Apologies to all the <laughs> Colonians. I didn't apologize. Listening. I didn't apologize to for the that. podcast. So you know, we we have to look at what has built things in the past in this in this country, and it is coming together in spaces like this, in real life opportunities to meet one another, and to not rely on those digital tools that are literally in the service of capitalism. We can use them to an extent, but but we know who benefits from them, who profits off of them, and then who profits off of us and our use of them. And so I don't think we should be embarrassed that we use internet tools. We're obviously all online, but we have to really cut back on it because radical organizing online is, is absolutely not possible unless you're supplementing it with some sort of other kinds of radical organizing. And like, look, okay, uh, the internet... Like, I don't tweet. You, Most of you probably know that. So, like, yeah, I'm over this Shame. shit. Shame. <laughs> I'm so over this shit. But the, the internet provides you with a permanent audience. And an audience changes the way that you interact with other people. Like, this is Except not... us. This is not how Nora this and I... This is how we are. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> this, is, this is not how we are, right? Like, I am this looking at you. I'm not looking at Nora. We like, we're, like, like in a conversation, but we're in a conversation with you. Like, we're trying to impart something. That's not the experience that we had with Scott earlier today at Baraka. <laughs> it's not, right? Like, we, we, we interact with each other differently when there is no audience. And that's not to say that there is, isn't a... A, a purpose for an audience or a world where it's good to have audiences, but there is something that is different when you are organizing without an audience. All of a sudden, the performance aspect disappears. And that is a huge aspect of how we interact with one another online. Like the, the sort of like call out culture stuff, which, you know, I have a lot of critiques about whatever. Like, you know, there, we, that's a whole other episode, which we've probably already done. I'm not sure. Um, but you know, if you are, if like, if you, if you, if I see Nora do something that I think is like bad, or like, what the hell? If my first interaction with that is Nora Loretto has done this, blah 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 blah, instead of fucking calling her, I've lost it. Like something has gone wrong with me because it's become more important for me to say to an audience of people that I don't know that I do not affiliate myself with that, then it is for me to call her and say, there's a problem here and here's another way that you should think about this and try to change her mind, right? Like there's, there's this audience thing that doesn't allow us to connect and construct the movements that we need to construct if we're going to fight back against all of the stuff that we were talking about earlier. So yes, I mean, gosh, please, please get offline and, and, and organize with one another directly because it really, really does change things. It does. There's the types of conversations and arguments, arguments, like the, the safety of arguments when you don't have an argument, when you don't have an audience, sorry, um, is really, really important. And argument and argumentation is really important to figuring out how we move forward on any issue. And while the next person gets to the microphone, I'll just let you know, come, 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 next question. Um, we had a lot of arguments. Very much. When we worked in the same office, and we would go into always Sandy's office. I don't know why your office. Well, you didn't have an office mate. My office was cleaner. Correct. <laughs> very, very clean. And we would close the door, and we would have it out. Yeah. And yeah. that was the only way. Like, I had the confidence that if we had it out, if I was wrong and Sandy was right, which was not super often... <laughs> I'm kidding. That was that all the time. is bullshit. That's totally that's totally bullshit. That, this is the audience like coming on you me see? now. Yeah. See what it does? Yeah. Lies get told. <laughs> History gets revised. Yeah. Total bullshit. So we would have these arguments, these debates, but always behind closed doors. And so then we would get on the same page, and we would be confident that we came up with something that was defendable within the broader office. And people always accused us of like being conspir <laughs> conspiratorial because we would come up with our own thing. It was like no. 
Remember how we were in the office together for like an hour? We were arguing. We were arguing about the best tactics to take. Mm -hmm. and, um, and we did it that way because if we had had those discussions in a meeting with an audience, it would have been a totally different discussion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And on that, though, so one of the things that makes me, that I think about is I recently listened to Naomi Klein's book, Doppelganger, mm. and that idea of our authentic self and the self we show. And then one of the things from her book that sticks out to me is what I've coined the perfection Olympics that parents often participate in with that idea of you're going to make your child able to work within capitalism versus trying to make capitalism work for us. Mm -hmm. And so that idea of how do you organize against it when people themselves have inscribed the identities of power in themselves. So instead of wanting to fight power, I just want to comply with it idea. So that's something that's further shored up within like your doppelganger or your online person with that audience. So how do you fight against people who have inscribed these oppressive power ideologies within themselves? Mm. Well, and so that's so interesting because it's like, have we inscribed them in ourselves or are they projected onto us? You know, and I think like, it's funny because like I, I, I got kids, right? Who's got kids, right? Fucking sucks, right? It's the worst fucking thing you can have. <laughs> Other than that guy's kids, you're perfect. Um, yeah, and, and like, I think that, you know, it's funny because as a parent, I mean, I've never felt that pressure ever, 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 ever. I've never felt the pressure of doing more. I'm not good enough. And, and like ever, ever, ever. And maybe it's just because I have a medically fragile kid. And when you have a medically fragile kid, it's like, he's alive. Who fucking cares, right? I, I'm not kidding. Like that's, that's literally the level of parenting that, I'm, that I was at in the most critical years. And then I just kind of carried that through. And, um, and I think that we are placed in that, pla in that situation. Because, you know, going back to the internet question, we see the world... Uh, online in a way that is perfectly manicured to what we tell the internet we care about. And so we adorn our spaces with the things that speak to us directly and that are so personalized that even like our best friend or our partner or someone who is a, a kind of an exact profile that we share looks completely different online, mm -hmm. right? So it's like, what is our authentic self? when that's the world that we're forced to live in, there's no authentic self. Because we're told by uh, the cookies cash here and what we've purchased over there and using our, our points card here and putting that into our social media feeds, we are told how to perform. And we are told what friendship looks like now. We don't have friends, we perform friendship. So it's, it's a really interesting question. How do we undo these things? And, and I think it all goes back. I mean, I mean, Naomi Klein's book is all about, like, like the Internet, really, obviously, mm -hmm. and how the Internet is, like, making people go bonkers. And when we, when we think about the, the roles that are placed on us to play, then it's different than what do we kind of assume from capitalism as our role in capitalism. I don't think anybody... Anybody, 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 anybody wants to be a cog in this machine. No one wants to be a cog. No one wants to be the best cog. They're like, actually, fuck being a cog. But we don't actually have this choice. And if we understand that we don't have this choice because it has been placed on us, then we're like, okay, then that's the enemy, is the thing that's placing it on us, and not how do we get someone to break out of it themselves. We have to create the conditions for, 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 for action. We have to create the conditions for someone to not feel like they're always inadequate. And I wonder for myself, it's like, hey, how, what are the conditions that in my life have allowed me to, to ditch all of that anxiety? I mean, the anxiety I have is like, has nothing to do with whether I'm good enough. It's like, I'm fucking great. What are you talking about, right? <laughs> and, I, and, and I think every single person in this room should have the same attitude. You're, you're fucking great. Like, any, like, you're the fucking best person you can be. And maybe tomorrow you'll be even better. And that's wicked, right? Not that you're striving to be better, but maybe tomorrow you'll be better. And if you're not, who fucking cares? Because you're already wicked. <laughs> Right? Right? So getting into a world where we can feel good about ourselves, I think, is more important than um, trying to pull people out of this, this space that they perform. Because it's, it's placed upon us.
Yeah, I mean, I don't have too much to add to that. I'm also reading Doppelganger, what I was reading on the way um, here on the plane. And like, I, I, I think that I'm only through the first part of it, so part one. And uh, for those of you who have been reading it, and like part one kind of describes like the, the thesis, which is like, um, you know, like Naomi Klein is talking about a very specific doppelganger that she has, which is Naomi Wolf. <laughs> Very bizarre, but she also just, <laughs> yeah, very, uh, but, but uh, she's also describing like the, the doppelganger that we all have, which is like our online selves. And like I, in reading it, I'm like, ah, yes, this is what I felt post-2020. When 2020 was happening and I was like online all the time and like on the news all the time and like creating like another version of myself that was going to be able to explain things in a way that people could, yeah, I get it. Like I feel it. And that is why I cannot interact on Twitter anymore. Like I'm, I'm on it. Like I'll check the news, but I just can't do that anymore because I am too amazing. <laughs> I, I do, I feel great about myself generally, but I, like, I, I feel weird about like the second version of myself that is online that isn't really me. And that's kind of why I've, I've taken myself offline because I think it's bad for organizing. I think it tricks us into thinking that we're doing things when we're not doing things because we are performing like doing things. We're like, ah, here is like what I am doing when you're not actually really doing anything, maybe you're liking something, which is something now. Like, uh, there's there's lots of layers to this, obviously, right? But again, like the internet. Do do folks in this room use DuckDuckGo at all? Yes. Does anyone here use DuckDuckGo? Yeah. Is there are there folks who don't know what DuckDuckGo is? Okay, DuckDuckGo is an, like an alternative to to Google. It is not ad driven, and it's not driven by an, an algorithm. Search anything, literally anything, and then search it on DuckDuckGo and see what the differences are. It is weird mm. when you start to notice how much of the internet is being tailored to you. And I really started to realize this when I was, I, I would talk to my partner about the types of things, like the types of news that was being pushed to him versus me. And then I, I was like, let me just like, like compare some of our searches on DuckDuckGo and Google. It's bizarre. The internet is, is creating a world for you based on the performance that you put out. And it is, it's hiding other things from you. And it's weird. It's very, very strange. And so, yeah, it's, it, it's also bad because it, it makes it difficult for us to have conversations across, across that bubble to other people. Uh, so yeah, get offline, please. And tr use DuckDuckGo every once in a while when you need to. Like I know that sometimes you need a Google, um, a Google uh, a hit, but, but sometimes you're gonna really want that DuckDuckGo hit, I promise you. Next. Hey, Sandy. Hi. Um, first, I just wanted to say, I couldn't leave without saying, um, Nora, the Daily News. Uh, a round of applause, like an enormous. I, the Daily News is such a slog, and just so you know, like, the times that I'm on the road, I am literally, like, in a closet being like, fuck my life, I did this, um, and so if you listen today, I was doing it in the hotel room last night under, like, blankets. <laughs> also, the funniest thing I think about the Daily News is when she pitched it to me, I was like, I'll do this, and I was like, I don't have time, and she was like, I'll do it on my own, she was like, don't worry, it's just gonna be, like, me giving the news objectively with no commentary, I was like... <laughs> <laughs> Which is what it is. <laughs> I was like, I'm not worried and feel free, but that's not going to happen. <laughs> it truly is so great. Like, I feel like me and myself and others have just been longing for a daily news podcast that talks to Canadian media, but also one that helps us recognize the gaslighting that is so prevalent in mm -hmm. mainstream media. We can see it for ourselves, but then have someone with a journalist background who can like, yeah, no, I see it too, and here is here is the criticisms. Um, it's it's fantastic. So so thank you. Um, but in that same vein, I just on that positive note of that reaching for light, reaching for levity. Um, where do y'all go right now when it's like? I need a, a hit of something that's going to give me joy, going to bring me joy. Obviously not movies for Nora, um, nope. yeah. for a movie, but what is it that, that's bringing you joy right now when, when you need that moment away from the 
the mainstream media. It's so funny because we can answer, I think, for each other. Oh, soccer. Capoeira. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's what it is. I like, I love capoeira so much. Does anybody here have, has anyone tried capoeira? Now this is going to be like a capoeira. Try capoeira. Start it. You first. We talked about it during the break. (laughs) Okay, if you haven't, it's really fun. And like, for me, it's like, it's a, it's a martial art. It's a Brazilian martial art. I hear somebody explaining it in the audience, so I'm going to explain it for you. It's a Brazilian martial art. kind of looks like breakdancing, um, and I uh, am not great at it. <laughs> like, it's like an extremely humbling experience for me because it, it kind of looks like breakdancing with some acrobatics uh, um, uh, in it, and I am not acrobatic, and I cannot breakdance. So <laughs> it's like... <laughs> No, it's a, <laughs> it's a, like a very, very humbling experience for me, but I love it because it's just getting together with people and communicating with your body, so it's communicating in a different way. And, and there's music involved, there's lots of singing involved, which I love, and there's instrument, instrumentation, so you learn different instruments, and it's just, it's great. It's great, and I love it. And it's uh, it's building of community, and you know I do it at the beach every Sunday, um, and three times a week in the academy, and it's it's fantastic. Yeah, so um, I I find joy in every aspect of my life. It's in the walk to school in the morning, and the walk home from school in the afternoon, and it's talking to other parents and friends that I have. I make time to go out every time I get the chance. And, um, you know, when we were at the Toronto live show, there was someone who was in the audience who played in a band, and he's like, my band's going to be in Quebec City in two weeks, you should come. And I had him over for supper, and I got to go to the show. And it was joy, joy, like just so nice. And so for me, it's like, you know, life is everything that capitalism doesn't want us to be doing. Mm -hmm. And so I... I don't care how tired I am. I don't care how fucking bad it is for me. I am. I take that moment of joy every time I get it. And I suffer for it, sure. Like, after that show, I was like, fuck me, it's too late. I have to do the Daily News podcast. This fucking sucks. Um, which I did. I did it until 1 a.m. after Dan Mangan, right? Um, but... Uh, but that's really important. And so, like, there's, the, there's the, the social aspects of life that I think we really need to push ourselves to do. Uh, and then there's the hobbies. And I remember asking online, what's your hobby? And a lot of people responded to me, like, a TV show they were watching. And I was like, that's not a fucking hobby. <laughs> like, I'm sorry. And people, Unless you watch Mr. Robot, because you have to really no, think no, when no, you're watching Mr. Robot. It's not, kind of like a hobby, because you're no, like trying to figure everything out. No, if you were building Mr. Robot, Die that'd be on different. that hill. Dying on the hill. <laughs> people were pissed when I was like, it's not a hobby. It's, a, it's, it's, it's not bad, right? It's, but a hobby is doing something, yeah, physically yeah. doing something, right? Um, and so, uh, yeah, if you don't have a hobby, you should do it. And I, you know, I, I got to go to Canada land for the first time, met people at Canada land for the first time in real life, including Jesse Brown, never met him before. Just, this was fucking a month ago. And, um, and I was talking, what a month it has been. (laughs) I mean, I mean, and yeah, and our conversation was like, fuck, wow. Okay. Um, but we, uh, I, I got to meet, you know, staff at Canada Land, and one of them comes up to me and was like, I started playing soccer because you talk about it all the time in your podcast. And, and she had played soccer and went back to it as an adult. And she's like, thank you. Thank you, thank you. Like, it is, it's back to change my life. And for me, I play three times a week if I can. It's like, you know, I fit it into my schedule. I'm, what day is today? Friday. Okay, I missed a game last night. I'm going to miss a game on Monday. I missed a game on today, actually, at noon. Um, But that moment of shutting off your brain, it just reminds me of being in church, right? You shut off your brain in church, and you're like, this fucking sucks, I'm stuck in church, right? (laughs) But you're just stuck there for an hour, and you're not looking at your phone, and you don't care about work, and your kids don't exist, and your fucking life doesn't exist, and you're just like, don't miss the ball, (laughs) right? Don't fucking fall. Mm-hmm. Don't hit your head on that guy's shoulder. That guy can't control his body. Stay away from him, right? That's literally the only thing running through my mind, and it is so good because I always feel better regardless of how late it goes or how tired I am or how much my body hurts. The bruises that I have, um, it's, it's critical. So do something, and, and, and you'll figure out what will bring you joy as you fucking try. 
Mm-hmm. Hello. Hi. Uh, my name's Chantel. Um, over the like last six weeks, as an indigenous person in these lands, uh, it's been very illuminating to like see how folks are reacting and and responding uh, as indigenous peoples here. But one of the things like. Uh, I have ancestors who fought in Batash, who fought for these lands, who uh, were executed for that. And so I have a very strong relation to both uh, colonialism here and then what is happening in Palestine right now. Um, And one of the things that I recognize is the uh, level of extent like that Winnipeg has in the labor movement Mm. um, and unionism here, um, going back to like 1919 and Mm -hmm. and folks who lost their lives for the labor movement here and the lack of that that is happening for Palestine right now. And uh, so what I would like to, to, to hear your thoughts on is uh, specific to Winnipeg, the history here for unionism uh, and the labor movement, and how that is um, being neglected <laughs> uh, from our city in what you're seeing, because uh, from what I'm seeing, like unions are not showing up and it's really disgraceful. Mm. Um, and that comes from a worker standpoint and, and folks who are not in their unions and are organizing within their unions. Mm. So I'd like to hear from you folks what you see <laughs> in, in kind of how that is, is coming about and the importance of, uh, like Winnipeg will always have a very special place in organizing because mm-hmm. of that mm-hmm. um, throughout this country, regardless of what the issue is. Uh, so I'd like to hear your your folks' thoughts on on that. Mm. Yeah, um, I think that uh, labor is demobilized in general, right? And I think that if you come from a place that has a history of radical labor action, the way that this city does have that history, you feel it even more, right? Um, you don't look at Ottawa and be like, "Man, we used to be radical here. What the fuck happened?" <laughs> Right? You're like, nah, you always, you were founded to suck. Like, <laughs> you were better as a labor camp, right? For, la- for labor, oh, this, um, as a wood build, a, a timber camp, or whatever the fuck, right? Uh-huh. Um, so I think, I think that, like, in, in labor, there, it, labor has been battered by le- neoliberalism just as all other. Uh, worlds have been. And in being battered by neoliberalism, a lot of labor leaders have taken a corporatist approach to labor organizing, right? So that means, you know, protect jobs at all costs, don't piss off the bosses too, too much. Um, You know, we did a talk this morning to teachers who have no right to strike, right? Remember, like, I don't know if you know this, but right this minute, one out of every 12 workers in the province of Quebec is on strike. Did you know that? Yeah, yeah, yes. The Franc in is super awesome. I mean, y'all listen to the Daily News, of course you know that. This morning, this morning, they're like, what are you talking about? They have the right to strike? It's like, yeah, fuck, what the fuck are you talking So, um, you know, radical labor organizing is tough because it's a bit of a, a, like, you know, activists will have this chicken versus egg conversation. Is it the membership that needs to be radical? Is it the, later, the leadership that needs to be radical? What comes first? How do we do this? And, uh, and Manitoba is a small province. And so you're also battling the realities of people knowing each other, of layers of complications and relationships and fights from 30 years ago or 20 years ago or last year. And, um, and organizing through that can be really, really difficult. But the other thing that is happening right now is a surge of radical action. And so we're seeing labor leadership like Laura Walton getting elected to the Ontario Federation of Labor which is cool. Laura was the um, president of the support workers for CUPE, and that is the group that went on wildcat strike, right, last November. Um, You have Lana Payne at the head of Unifor, and Lana's not, I mean, Lana's a friend of mine. She's not, like, ultra-radical. You can't be ultra-radical in that position, but, like, it was an upset victory when she ran against Scott Doherty. That's amazing. You've got J.P. Hornick, who's at the head of the Public Sector Union in Ontario, 
you know, there are things that are happening that it might take a bit of time to happen in Manitoba because, I mean, in, in Ontario, they've been fighting forever to make OPSU more radical, forever. J.P. Hornick's victory came out of nowhere for the leadership. It took years of organizing. So I think that, you know, the benefit of being in Winnipeg is you do have this radical history and people do know about labor in a way that doesn't exist in Calgary, right? It exists kind of in Vancouver. It exists in Edmonton. It doesn't really exist in Toronto. And so you can use that to your benefit while you're organizing people to try and take back your unions from a corporatist approach, if that's the case at your union. And, um, and, and it sucks because I think that we want, you know, we look at the, it's like the, the disappointment that people have with the NDP, right? You want the NDP to not suck. And when the NDP sucks, you're like, you're supposed to not suck. Why are you sucking? And they're like, we don't suck. And you're like, you're sucking right now. I'm watching you suck. And they're like, what are you talking about? It's like, suck, 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 right? So it, you know, there's a, there's a, like we say in French, like deception, there's a deception around watching that. And you have to get past that and be like, okay, they suck. So how do we, do we organize with them? Do we organize against them? Do we organize something new? Do we organize from below? Do we get rid of this leader? Is that going to be our approach? But that comes with a collective discussion and a collective debate of how you move forward. Yeah, I um, I think that unions like are the key. Actually, <laughs> like I really do believe. I remember the first time I started working at a union and understood just how much money was not being spent, and I was like, like things went off in my brain. Like I was just like so frustrated. I was like, oh, this is where the key is. This is the key to everything because money is being spent on the right. Like it is being spent to try things and for things to not work and for things to work and whatever. But we don't do that as much. And the the excuse that we often get is that, you know, like this is a democratic space and, you, you know, it has to be led by the membership. But And then you like go to a labor convention and then you'll see like some really weird stuff happening on the stage and you're like, is this dance troupe really demanded by the membership? I'm not sure. Or is something else happening here? Like, is there something missing? <laughs> and I do, I really do believe that the key is in labor. And what it will require of us is not just organizing, but mobilizing. And I do believe that those things are two separate things. And we will need to mobilize people to demand that we have these groups, like these groups that exist and are protected, that will use the resources that they have to build institutions, to build, insti like, like the labor temple that we went to earlier today. Like Shout this, out to the Ukrainian labor temple. Like, you know, like these institutions that will allow us to continue and further our organizing. And for that to exist in some part in this city and to, 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 um, to continue to exist, to have this long history behind it, and to have a, a, hopefully a very bright future in front of it. Like there's there's space here to organize within and to mobilize within to make that happen. And so you know we we've talked on the podcast before about the like the hump of feeling like you can't get past this this thing. You know like there's a comfort there's a comfort in any sort of institution where things are just chugging along and everybody's comfort comfortable because nothing. You're not really challenging anything, and and the institution is able to continue on without feeling like it's taking any risk, and everyone is okay. We have to get past that hump, and to to force the mobilizing that needs to happen to get unions to take a few risks to say like, yeah, build this institution, to to be strong on these issues on the ground. And sometimes it's going to be led by the leadership and sometimes it's going to be led by the, by the membership. And, you know, at this point, like, who cares? Somebody's got to lead the mobilizing. And I, I think that, honestly, if we're going to have a true challenge to the way that neoliberalism has been able to dismantle so many of our institutions and services and, and what have you in this country, it is going to come from a place that's already in some ways organized and well-resourced. And where else is that but unions mm -hmm. in this country? I don't know where else it is. Hi, Sandy. Hi, Nora. Hey. Um, I'm Sophie. 
Um, I traveled here today from Northern Ontario, and I am a member of UPSU, and I did not have the opportunity to go to the Ontario Federation of Labour Convention this weekend, or this past week, but our local president did go, and I've been getting updates, and I look forward to sitting down and having a coffee with them and hearing more, but there was a motion that came to the floor that Fred Hahn spoke to about Labour affiliating with the NDP, and I don't know what the result of that was. But I thought, hmm, that's a good question for Sandy and Nora. I guess there was a small discussion with a minority of people about creating a new Labour Party. Mm. It was the minority. Um, So I just would like to hear your thoughts on that. Wait, I need more. You need more. Yeah. Tell me, oh, I just need more about the parameters. Like, in terms of, I have so many thoughts. I could go in so many different directions. Yeah, of course. Um, So... The message I got was Fred Hahn called upon Labour to get involved in order to strengthen the party and right the wrongs rather than walk away from the party that Labour built. Right. Yeah, Yeah. right. So Fred Hahn, for folks that don't know, is the president of CUPE Ontario, right? And he's uh, a long-standing president of CUPE Ontario. And in the Ontario Federation of Labor, and it's the same kind of uh, debates that happen in federations of labor all across Canada, uh, do you officially align with the NDP or not? In Ontario, it's got a specific kind of history, like everywhere, because Bob Ray was elected as the NDP premier and was a fucking disaster. And in being a disaster, he pushed some of the more powerful unions to refuse to support the NDP de facto. And so this has always been a debate in the Ontario Federation of Labour. Do we take a pro-NDP stance as part of our constitution, or do we do a strategic vote thing, and it's like vote NDP unless you're in like fucking 90% of Ontario and then vote against the Conservatives? Um, So do you want to answer or you want me to? I mean, this feels very much like the conversation that we had at lunch um, (laughs) at at Baracas. So uh, I feel like that's what we're going to have right now. Um, okay, so I, 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 I made many sounds and expressed much frustration at this lunch because the, one of the questions that is unresolved for me is, is this question. It's like, it's like, do you push the NDP or do you try to build something new? And here's what I'm struggling with. So like, you know, maybe help me resolve this over time. I don't know. Here's what I'm struggling with. So, you know, like, I know some of the people who run the NDP. And I don't think it should be that difficult to be in a room and force a conversation and an argument that leads to some change. I just don't think it should be that hard. I don't. And every time I talk to somebody that I know who's been an MPP or an MP, they're like, no, it's so monumentally hard. I'm like, what? How is that possible? Like, I know that person you're talking about. It doesn't seem real. And then, okay, so if I accept that, and then I think about the, the, the alternative, which is building something new, it's like, if, I can't, if we can't successfully confront these people within the party, How do we build something new and successfully confront the institutions, the systems, and everything? Like, we should be able to do both. Like, if you can do that, then you should be able to do this. And, like, I just don't understand. Like, seriously, I don't understand why it is so difficult to move the party. Like, I I see what happened in the Ontario legislature in the last month. And, you know, like, someone being kicked out of the caucus. Like, I wonder, like, what was it like for, for her and for other MPPs in the Ontario legislature? Did they try to make the party move first? And what was that like? And, you know, I've discussed this with people who were MPPs in Ontario um, post-2020 who were like, who would be calling me, like literally calling me. I, I cannot tell you how politics works. It's so bizarre. Like even in, during 2020, I would get calls from like Jugmeet Singh being like, hey, so this is what we're doing like in terms of, of policing. But you know that I'm really all the way there, right? And I'm like, oh my God. Like I just, I don't understand. Like I'm hearing your arguments, people. I really am. You're saying it's hard. 
but I don't understand what it is that's difficult. And I, like, part of me just, like, believes that maybe we have forgotten how to have arguments with one another, and maybe we just don't want to have those uncomfortable conversations. I'm not sure. But, I mean, I came up in organizing in rooms like this, where you stood at a mic and were like, Nora, your idea is really bad. And then Nora would be like, actually, fuck you. My idea is really great. And then we would argue with one another in front of an audience and sometimes not in front of an audience and come to some sort of res resolution and I just it, it is it is it's like painful to me to like try to put my my brain around it because everyone that I know like personally who are, are part of these institutions or a part of this party seems to have the right like personal politic but somehow all of those people are not able to have the arguments that need to be had to shift the party. So apparently, with that, I mean, like, if deducing forward from that, either the NDP is, like, the most intransigent and also strongest organization ever to the people within, and also weakest on the outside, or there's something else going on here that I don't understand. And I don't understand how if we can't change that, how we're going to build something new that is going to do what needs to be done and not be, uh, be uh, susceptible to capture from the very same people. Like, and that's where I'm at. That is what I said at lunch. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. So yeah. <laughs> Okay, so I have the benefit of being in Quebec. The NDP doesn't exist. It's sweet. Um, and I have the benefit of being in LA. The <laughs> NDP doesn't exist. It's not sweet. <laughs> uh, if, we can't, if we can't take over the... Like, what you're saying is if, we, if we're not sophisticated enough to take over the NDP, we're not going to build anything new that's fucking worth anything. That's the argument. All right. So I, I have a different approach to this. And my approach to this is that I also know a lot of the people that run these parties, and the only thing that these people respond to is external pressure. And I think that, like, should Labour give uncritical support to the NDP? Only if the NDP is giving full access to itself from Labour. And, and I mean, we're not in Ontario, and the question is about Fred Hahn and the Ontario Federation of Labour and the NDP. It is worth mentioning that a decade ago, the NDP in Ontario kicked out of caucus all of the Labour representatives. They always had Labour representatives in caucus where they had researchers. They kicked them all out for no fucking reason because they're fucking not that smart. And that created a war between the NDP and Labour that Fred Hahn is trying to bring back together. So, that, so there's a whole backstory to the question that may or may not be obvious or may or may not be something that people are thinking about but it's like the I think that the NDP is rotten I think that it is unsalvageable I think that anyone that tries to salvage it is either an idiot or noble <laughs> right those are the two poles and and so anytime someone's like I want to try and salvage it, I'm going to run I'm going to do this thing I'm not I don't oppose them I'm like yeah give her try whatever um, but I think that the reason why things are so stuck in the mud is because all of the focus is on the internal and that you get snared in traps that you know and that I know and that all you're dealing with is these traps and no one is willing to rise above them. And, and now with Sarah Jama being kicked out of the Ontario caucus, it's like, whoa, the bar's really low actually for you to get shivved by this party. And so people, there's also, there's also fear, the, not the right people are getting involved because they're doing more useful things. So it's a real, it's a real conundrum. I am very sympathetic to the idea right now of building a new left-wing party. I think that that would be very interesting. And, and something that I learned with watching Quebec Solidaire, so Quebec Solidaire is this left-wing party. It grew out of the women's movement and uh, social action. Uh, there's not much labor involvement, but there are labor activists because the labor is very institutionally tied to the Parti Québécois. The Parti Québécois has taken a right-wing turn and blah, blah, blah. There's a lot of history on this. Um, but Quebec's leader was like kind of stuck for a long time until it merged with another party called Option Nationale. And Option Nationale was a party that had the exact same platform as Quebec's leader, but it talked about sovereignty a lot more. 
And for some reason, Option Nationale reached artists way more than QS did. And so there was this pile of artists who were just sitting in this party. And there was debates. Like in Montreal, they're like, this is just a racist party. They don't do anything. They're useless. But in Quebec City, they were a real threat to us because the leadership of Option Nationale were two very dynamic, very exciting, super left-wing, uh, not at all racist in the classic Quebec way, um, leaders. And, uh, I mean, everybody's racist, right? But, like, I mean, there's a specific you know, flavor, right? Je ne sais quoi, but I know exactly say quoi, right? Um, and so they merge. And it was the process of merger was really hard. Uh, but the merger brought these two dynamic leaders from Option Nationale into Quebec Solidaire. All of these artists come in. All of a sudden, something happens. And Quebec Solidaire goes from three seats to ten. Uh, which is not much, but I mean, it's huge in Quebec because it goes from this tiny little area in Montreal to being elected in Sherbrooke and Abitibi and in Quebec City. And, um, and the party still got a lot of problems and you can see the tensions between professionalizing and, and the party of the streets, which it claims to be. But that outside pressure of Option Nationale was so annoying. It was so irritating for us in Quebec City. And we had this night of rapprochement where we had people from ON, we had people from QS, they're all in my living room, and we were debating, and we're like, there's no difference between these parties. Why are you here? And ON was like, because you're not speaking to art and culture and this, this spirit of Quebec that we all agree exists. Like, there wasn't, like, a debate. Like, there's this, this thing that, like, exists in the province that, like, you want to ascribe to because it's this beautiful, beautiful cultural thing. And, uh, and that was in 2013. And the merger happened in, like, 2018. And it changed everything about the party. And so I do, I, I think that the NDP needs something, an external threat. And I think that the Green Party kind of could have been that, but they're so divergent that there's no way that the two parties can merge right now. Um, but any, anyway, that's a long way of saying, like, I mean, fuck the NDP, but also, yeah, maybe we can change it, but, like, it's not my business anymore because I'm in Quebec. <laughs> <laughs> I have a question about, like, also from rural northwest Ontario, and I think there's an interesting... Most of us in Canada live in cities and are on the Internet and doing all the things you speak to tonight, but in my community, it's mostly older folks who are not engaging in the internet and aren't like strongly one way or another. Um, and I'm looking for ways to like find guidance and support at a grassroots level where no one's really into party politics and no one's really holding strong to an ideology, mm. but kind of almost like looking for some kind of sense of like old time community engagement with like multi-generational people, like excited to see me and my wretched feral children, you know, <laughs> running amok. Um, but beautiful feral children running amok. But um, that I find coming from like a radical urban environment um, that um, some of my ideas and approaches are like too brash and too individualistic and too like internet referencing, you know, referencing um, to actually make solid real world connections with this like urban or sorry, rural population. Do you mind really... giving us some examples? Yeah. So like um, being coming from, I grew up in Ottawa mm -hmm. and I married a Métis man from here and we're trying to find our way in between. So coming at like um, logging is not great. Clear cutting is not great. But then my neighbor has um, a logging operation and we get our lumber from them for really cheap and they're really good to us and they'll like plow our driveway if we ask them and they're good people and they're open to and wanting to see revitalization of their community too but they're not going to stop clear cutting and we're not going to like puncture the tires of their machines <laughs> though we thought maybe that was a good idea at some point, you know. Um, so there's this like complexity there where my urban internet ideologies come up against these like real people at a grassroots level who also want a, a thriving community and they want to see young people growing up there again. Um, but this like antagonistic relationship doesn't work there. We're very dependent on each other and um, 
I don't know if you guys have any experience with the rural Canadians who are like, party politics don't mean anything to them because they feel forgotten anyway. Yeah. And what really matters is like, how do we find a meeting place in between where our values um, and beliefs can kind of intertwine to inform each other, but like in this, you have to take this real gentle approach, you know, in this real like codependent, not codependent, interdependent um, reality of like rural life, which I think will become more of a reality for us as, you know, climate continues to shift and, you know, capitalism continues to um, die in a fire of its own terrible, terrible demise, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, okay, completely right. I have zero experience in rural anything. I am an urban knight through and through, but I do have some thoughts, and uh, Nora is not that, so I'm much more rural, <laughs> but I can't say the word very well. But I think, I mean, part of what you're de describing, sound, like, it sounds great, actually, to me, because I think that when you are in an interdependent community, much like when you're, like, I don't know, like, in a family, right? Like... Uh, I don't know if you, any of the rest of you had some of this experience, but some folks in my family during, uh, during the, the pandemic and the vaccine and like the different ways that people thought about vaccines, I mean, it got really real in the family group chats and it got really real in the ways that our family were like uh, interacting with one another because not everybody was on the same page, but, but we're still family, right? So we're kind of forced to have conversation with one another. Like there's, because at the end of the day, after all of the disagreement has happened, we will continue to be family. And I imagine that in a community that is reliant on one another, that if you are reliant on one another, whether or not you disagree with something, you're still gonna need your neighbor. And in some ways that opens up the ability to have conversations in another way because you can't, in an urban space, you can throw people out. Yeah. You can be like, I will never talk to you again. And it's like, oh my God, that's so like one, I don't know. Sometimes you need that, yes, but a, a lot of times I feel like we do this because we want to replicate the internet in our lives. And it's like, block, <laughs> I don't have to ever talk to you again. But it's, it's so much, like we are, we are absolutely reliant on people who are not the same as us and don't have the exact same principles and values as us. So when you know those folks and you rely on each other in a different way, it opens up the possibility for discussion in another way. And also I think that we confuse mobilizing and organizing. So when you are slashing tires, that is a form of mobilization. It is not organizing. You are not trying to like build a, a broader base and to take an idea and spread it when you do something like that. You are saying consequences to your terrible ideas, which is like there's space for that and it's necessary. I mean, everything that we did with BLM, like I remember people being like, you guys aren't organizers, you're like mobilizers. And it's like, yes, facts, it was a decision, it was discussed, and that is what we want to do. We are mobilizing. There are very many people who are doing great organizing in the black community, and what we have noticed is there is a dearth of mobilizing, and that is what we are doing. We are trying to mobilize. In some ways, you can, you can draw people into your movement in that way because you like mobilizing, can, you can make things look joyful, cool, sexy, whatever. Like there's a, there's a way that there, that is part of an organizing strategy, but organizing is different. And when, when you are um, like in a place where it's like, gosh, you can't do the same things that you do in like an urban community, one of the things, I think the first thing that you, you, you try to do is figure out where people are already organized, like schools, houses of worship, um, like soccer teams, capoeira, is there capoeira in your community? I don't know. <laughs> capoeira academies, whatever, right? Like you, and you figure out where people already are gathering together around something. And you go there and you try to have conversations. It's like, there is nothing more effective, if anybody's ever done this, there is nothing more effective than one-on-one -on -one conversations. I don't care how many people like your shit on Twitter. There is nothing for organizing 
that is more effective than a one-on-one -on -one conversation. You can be in the news every goddamn day for the rest of your life. People can watch you. It is not the same as being in front of somebody and having a conversation where they can ask you and challenge you a question, to challenge you with questions or with thoughts that they have, and you can respond right back, and maybe, who knows, maybe they bring up something that you didn't think of. But that, that ability to have like direct interaction, that is, it's, it's like the lifeblood of making change in the world, I promise you. Like there is, it takes so few people to change like something massive, like a massive policy. And when you have that opportunity in a small place where it feels like people aren't organized, like actually it, it's like so ripe for organizing. Well, and yeah, people are more organized in rural communities because you have to be, right? So, I mean, I'm, I'm from the suburbs, but the suburbs were like a tiny town, and my family has a, a dairy farm. We used to have a dairy farm. It's still a farm. My cousin still farms it. I'm fully a city slicker in that relationship, but, I mean, I grew up around a farm, my mother's farm, um, and, you know, I get to go back there still every time I go home, if, I, if I'm able to. Um, last time I was home, my cousin was like, yeah, my pig ate the heads off of three baby goats. And I was like, that's fucking weird. And he's like, I know. <laughs> and so then the pig was like an electrified pen now because he was like trying to kill the goats. So, you know, um, the, I, like, I get, I, I totally do get that world because I'm related to a lot of people in that world. And, um, and not only am I related to them, but that informs like the way I understand Canada is like knowing this little tiny part of rural southwestern Ontario uh, where my family is from. And, and then the other half of my family is from northern Ontario and I was from northwestern Ontario. So, I mean, I, it, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing part of Ontario to be from because it's like Ontario is just like this capitalist powerhouse, but then when you get out of the capitalist powerhouses of, this, of the province, you see what it is like to live in real life where you have to rely on people. And so I think that, you know, you know, Sandy mentioned find out where people are. Community centers are really, really important, and a lot of small communities have those community centers, and getting involved in those community centers is really great. Uh, things like house concerts can be amazing because a lot of people do have big old houses. They have space for a house concert. You can promise an artist 400 bucks in a night and you've created a little bit of community. So, yeah, shout out to Home Roots. Anyone know Home Roots? Yes? All right. My parents were on the original Home Roots tour. Actually, I was on the original Home Roots tour as well, which is cool. Um, and there's a bunch of other things that have popped up, but Home Roots is related to the um, Winnipeg Folk Festival. Um, and, uh, and it's amazing because it creates that community in small, in small towns and, and in rural communities. So um, finding opportunities like that. And because people are already organized, it actually means that it is easier to talk about things. I mean, this is, this is a place where capitalism hasn't actually yet destroyed, right? It's like people understand the threat of like factory farming if they're trying to keep the family farm. They understand that like unless the barn burns down and they get a million dollars in insurance, they're not going to electrify the milkers, which is going to be the end of, of, of the dairy farm. That was certainly the case in my family. Uh, they understand uh, that free trade is, is threatening them. They understand that free trade is, is threatening not just their markets, but then also bringing in different bugs from different parts of the world that are fucking up the forests. They see climate change in a totally specific way that, that city people don't see because they see snow accumulation. We don't see that in the city. Snow's taken out of the city, right? So there's a lot of benefits in rural Canada that, um, that can be organized. And, you know, someone like Nikki Ashton, who's been elected for a long time in a majority rural riding, uh, and there's others, but I mentioned Nikki because she wanted to be here tonight. She couldn't, you know, flights and all this stuff. Um, under, you know, understand that you, you go to these communities and you know people, and the second you're networked and know, know who they are, know that the, that's the person that's doing the logging, that's the person that's going to clear your driveway, that's the person that's going to be, like, watching for freaky stuff going on or whatever... Uh, then you actually can map out your community better than, than the anonymity of the urban space. And what you gain in the urban space, you also lose in it. Because, I mean, I'm dependent on my neighbors where I live, but I just as easily could be completely dismissive of them and not even know their names. But I know them because I make the effort. And in rural Canada, that's the, that's the beauty of it, is you do know everybody. It's also the downfall, because it can suck to know everybody. But if you're in that space 
you can turn that into an organizing opportunity if you know the, the locations to do that, the people to do that, and the issues that people care about. Um, Polyever is really riding high on this rural spirit in Canada. And I think it's fucked up because I think that the history of rural cooperation in this country is so strong. You know, you look at the history of Tommy Douglas winning in 1943 and all of the discussions around uh, on, on employment insurance and pensions and creating national social programs and who are the two groups fighting every step of the way from like 19 fucking 10 right into the 50s, it's labor and it's farmers. How have we come so far from that? And part of it is capitalism eating up the family farm in fucking rural Canada in the most severe and disgusting way. But part of it is also us forgetting that there are, there are radical folks who are, who are, whose life depends on their production themselves. And they're the ones that are going to help us through a lot of the climate catastrophes. So, I mean, it's isolating. It's tough. You're in a small area. you got to drive everywhere. But it's also like the best people and the best kind of organizing conditions as well. Mm-hmm. Thank you all so much. Thank you for coming. Thank you for participating. Oh, man, you are the best. Thank you.